0: Welcome, friends, to Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you. I am your host, Curtis Kopotick, and I am joined by my co-host, Amber Brown, and today we are joined by Dr. Ben Hoffman.
1: Ben is the Chief Medical Officer of Work Steps, and he is going to talk to us a little bit about his experience as an occupational health physician and pre-employment testing.
0: Can you please describe for our listeners what your role was prior to being with WorkSteps, And then now what is your current role with WorkSteps?
2: Okay. Well, I am a occupational health physician, which means that my work focuses on the health and safety risks in the workplace. And I'm particularly focused on prevention strategies, that is prevention of injury and illness in the workplace. That's my training. I have worked primarily as a corporate medical director and I've worked for numerous corporations. I spent probably close to 20 years of my life working for General Electric in the various industrial operations and then as a chief medical officer of a variety of their industrial operations where there's a lot of risk of injury and illness. I also spent about 10 years at waste management where injury is a huge problem because of the nature of the work. Recently, I retired from GE, took an early retirement, and I moved over as the chief medical officer of WorkSteps. I had met WorkSteps about 20 years ago when I was at waste management, when I was trying to figure out the ways to prevent the enormous numbers of injuries that they were having this is in the 2000 2004 range they had as many as 15,000 injuries a year and up to 70 deaths
0: oh my gosh
2: yes it was quite a substantial issue with a very significant amount of human suffering and cost associated with it financial and other types of cost so I worked with the I was a vice president at the time and I worked with the VP of safety to figure out ways to prevent injury At that time, I met WorkSteps, headquartered in Austin, Texas, and I was quite impressed with their work. I used them to assess every single job task that workers were doing, and along with determining ways to assess whether or not workers were able to perform those jobs through simulation in a physical therapy or some sort of clinical setting. I used that work over subsequent years, including at General Electric, both in the U.S. and globally, to assist our endeavors in trying to reduce injury and illness. So when I decided to retire, I thought they would be a wonderful group to join. They're really a great bunch of people. And so I joined them about a year and a half ago.
0: And after joining them, what is your relationship with them and what do you do for them?
2: I'm doing two things at the moment. I had developed a small consulting group. There were about 20 of us that were involved in a broad range of occupational health-related services, including medical surveillance and corporate consultation around helping companies assess what their what the health risks were to their enterprise. And so we joined forces with that work that I was doing. And at the same time, I was strengthening the medical component of the post-offer employment and functional demands analysis that they perform.
1: So this is your retirement gig then, huh?
2: Yes, this is my quasi-retirement gig. There are about a 100 of us in the business, of which four of them are my children, all of whom have diverse skill sets. They're all quite educated and well-trained and had been working with me in part recently one in particular around occupational health risk one of the things we do in my area and we've taken this over to bring it also in and expand the services that Worksteps does but it's assessing the risks that health creates for an enterprise health not only creates risks and that is adverse health you know people have medical conditions or unable to do certain things they have substantial impacts upon the enterprise. However, the flip side of that coin is that health is also a differentiator. So if you have a workforce that's healthy, it's important to continue to nurture that and to understand that a healthy workforce is a productive workforce.
1: So then how do you go about testing those employees to find out if they are healthy? What does that exactly look like?
2: Historically, companies used to do medical examinations when somebody was being hired or during the course of their work with the company. And medical exams for most types of workers don't have a lot of value in determining whether or not somebody is able to perform a job. There are certain types of jobs that have certain types of risks that a medical examination by a medical-type clinician, typically a physician, nurse practitioner, or a physician's assistant, has value. So, for instance, if you're going to be exposed to silica or lead or asbestos or certain chemicals in the workplace, it's important to understand whether or not there are any medical limitations such that a person has compromised lung function or has some liver disease that can't metabolize chemicals if they are exposed. So there is a reason to do medical exams in certain situations. But for the vast majority of people, the types of exams that should be done should assess whether or not they're able to perform the physical functions of the job, and at the same time, you can assess whether or not any of the factors, such as environmental factors, heat, cold, that type of thing, are going to impact their ability to perform the job. So the post-offer employment test, that term, post-offer employment test, which the acronym is POET, and that acronym is actually embedded in the law. We can get into the law in a moment. There is fairly extensive regulation and case law around what an employer is allowed to do in terms of assessing potential employees' ability to perform a job, and it gets even more complicated with incumbent employees. Some of those regulatory guidance or requirements is part of the EEOC's Uniform Guidelines on Employee Selection Procedures, but there's also a lot of case law. However, it's very acceptable to perform post-offer employment testing on potential employees. That's done in the post-offer pre-hire continuum of the pre-employment process. And the post-offer employment test is comprised of a number of components. WorkSteps is the leader in this. They were the first ones to introduce this to the marketplace and have done millions and millions of exams over more than 35 years. The process begins with a consent form. So the employee needs to consent or the prospective employee needs to consent. Then it goes to a medical history. And that medical history is can be fairly broad and ask questions that are beyond the scope of the ability to perform the job, but they cannot be used in the hiring decision. And that medical history is reviewed with a clinician. And one of the examples of that would be that, or several examples would be, you want to rule out the person has diabetes or heart disease, certain things that would be a limitation in order to perform the exam. The components of the exam include cardiovascular measures, which is a American Heart Association step test. There are various levels of step tests. There's two-minute step tests at eight-inch height of the stairs. There are 20-minute step tests with 12-inch height of stairs or a variety of them, but we do a fairly straightforward one. And the reason we do that is that it's a standardized way to determine whether or not somebody has any evidence of underlying coronary disease. So you look at changes in blood pressure and heart rate. So that first component is the cardiovascular measure. Then we move over to strength measurements, determine whether or not the person can grip and pinch and oftentimes use a certain type of device that's a dynamometer that tells you what somebody's strength is. Then we do a musculoskeletal evaluation. And the musculoskeletal evaluation is taking a lot of measurements, generally 40, 50 or more measurements determine one's range of motion of their joints, and you're documenting whether or not there's any limitations in all of the ranges of motion of each joint. From there, there is a dynamic lifting and a progressive lifting sequence. And finally, in most cases, we perform essential function testing in which we attempt to demonstrate the capability for that individual to safely perform the essential functions of the job. So for instance, if somebody has to move 50-pound boxes from a truck down to the floor, we'll actually assess whether or not they're able to do that. So there are the types of testing that's done. And then once it's done, it's evaluated and it's assessed and a determination is made as to whether or not The person is able to perform the essential functions of the job or whether or not they're not. There are a variety of results that we send to employers, but essentially it says whether or not somebody is able to perform the job or not. So
0: that's a, a pretty big and great overview of it, that's a pretty wide spectrum of tests that you do. I mean, it sounds very thorough. How is this different than other programs of pre-employment testing that you know of? Is this very unique or is, are these pretty standard tests?
2: Well, the document that I mentioned to you before, which is the EEOC document that establishes the requirements and regulations around post offer employment testing allows three different methods to determine the types of elements or components of the testing that I mentioned before and determine whether or not somebody is able to perform the job we do a specific way of doing that it's one of the three methods we use other companies use those methods but there are a multitude of companies in this country that use the other two ways of determining whether or not somebody is fit to perform the job. I think that we have refined this process over millions of exams, and it is pretty airtight. I think that it's unique in that our process is so disciplined and detailed. It takes 45 to 60 minutes. We have been challenged, of the millions of exams that we've done, We have only been challenged a few times, and none of them have ever reached anything other than a request by the EEOC to see the documentation in which we validated that what we were testing for correlated with what it took to perform the job. Now, something that I didn't mention before is that when you go in and you perform job analysis and you determine the task that you are going to subsequently translate into a simulation, you need to validate that process. It's required again in the law. And validation is something that there, I don't believe there's any company like ours in the country that has the amount of sophistication to the validation process. A number of years ago, we partnered with a group called Biddle, which is B I D D L E, which is out of California, who's a company that is one of the leaders in EEOC compliance. You may know that if you're an employer, there's certain types of filings that you need to do or perform on a periodic, usually quarterly and annual basis with the EEOC regarding how many people you've hired with disabilities, if you've had any complaints. Uh, You know, there's a whole series of reporting requirements that came out of the ADA. Biddle is the group that does a lot of that work for large corporations. They manage the process and the filings. I first met Biddle when I was at General Electric because they handled the EOC compliance for the corporation. So we went to Biddle and we worked with them to develop a process which is in part done through software that allows an employer to take the job analysis data you know what you know how many times a person is turning a valve how many pounds of force it requires how many times you have to lift 50 pounds from shoulder to overhead and we developed a program that is utilized by both managers and incumbent employees that validates that what we're testing for is what's required of that job. And it's called a PAVE analysis, P-A-V-E. And that PAVE analysis, which is job validation, is essential to doing things right. And we are the only ones that have been able to develop a program like that that assures the employer that when this testing is going to be done, that they're going to be able to overcome any challenges to buy a potential employee who comes back and says that the examination that was done was not that I was discriminated against and that it doesn't reflect what it takes to do the job. And therefore I was not hired. In order to defend yourself, you need to have that validation process in place. And that's what we have. And so it's essential to the success of what we do. The other component that, and it's it's not related to this, but I'm going to mention it, that creates the success of what we do is not only do we have a highly disciplined job analysis process combined with a validation process, we have a network of about 1,600 licensed, certified, trained providers that can perform these tests. So if you're a multi-site employer Your company X that has 100 locations around the United States, or you have all field service people in 1,000 locations, once you develop this test and you roll it out, you have to be able to get the testing done. And because we have such an extensive network around the country, we cover pretty much every nook and cranny in the country, we're able to get this work done. And it's absolutely essential for an employer who's doing this type of testing to be consistent across their hiring base. You can't do something in one location, something different in another location. We have standardized that approach and that ability to get these tests done.
0: Are you wanting to do post-offer employment testing? Have you thought about doing that on site? With the tight labor market and the market conditions right now, you likely can't afford to send somebody off site to do those screens. At Fit for Work, we can help you control the hiring experience, speed up the process so you don't lose that candidate to your competitors across the street. This is applicable to companies big and small. And the first step is that our ergo team can get the positions quantified and set up so that you can do ADA and EEOC compliant testing. And oftentimes that process can actually help to expand your candidate pool because you're doing some ergonomic abatements that lessen the essential functions of the job so more candidates are capable of performing them. So if you're wanting to do post-offer pre-employment testing, let's talk. We've been doing this for over 20 years and can help you do that correctly. Connect with us at wellworkforce.com, click on the connect with us button, and we'll talk
2: to you soon.
1: Why would you think or why have you seen that companies are resistant to this kind of testing?
2: Well, when you bring this type of testing into an employer, there are usually multiple stakeholders who have to get involved. It's human resources, it's operations, it's legal, it's safety, and sometimes, sometimes, but not usually, the union. And you all have to agree that this test is valid, accurate, and fair. And people who are not experienced, the stakeholders who are not experienced with this type of work, oftentimes bring challenges up as to why this should not be done. Examples of that would be the lawyers will say, well, We're going to get sued and we're going to lose the lawsuits. And that's something that we can easily overcome. We have extensive white papers on this. We track the law. We have both a lawyer on staff and we use a one of the most talented EEOC ADA lawyers in the country. His name is Frank Alvarez who's with one of the large law firms that does employment law. So the lawyers have to be assured. So that's what the lawyers get concerned about, that it's discriminatory. But the regulations around this allow you to manage that issue very safely. The HR people are oftentimes questioning it because their concern is it's going to reduce the number of people you're able to hire, and in particularly tight job markets, if this is going to turn away a certain percentage of employees, they'd rather have a warm body working than not, even though you may be injuring that individual, because oftentimes they're measured by their ability to recruit. So that can become an obstacle. And interestingly, and I'll bring this up when you want me to, you know, we look at this type of data. We look to see, you know, what percentage of the people is a company turning away. What is the impact of that? upon the operations of the business. Generally speaking, somewhere between 5 and 8% of employees that we test are unfit to do the job, incapable of performing the job. Now, you need to go through an accommodation process with them. You just can't say, no, you can't have the job. It's required under the ADA to have that interactive dialogue to discuss it with the employee and decide whether or not reasonable accommodation is acceptable. However, one of the things we find in our data, because we do very extensive analytics, is that this population has lower turnover. The ones that are hired have lower turnover. So turnover rates are generally more than 5% less among the people who go through the post-offer employment process versus ones that don't and we have data to show even in the same company one half of the country is doing the testing one isn't one half is not you can look at the same job on the west coast versus the east coast and you see the turnover is lower so net net you're not hiring. you know you are turning people away but on the other hand you're keeping people longer so you don't have to hire somebody so we have to go through all these obstacles the other thing is they want to know what their return on investment going to be so if a post-offer employment test is You know, approaching two hundred dollars ish. It changes a little bit based upon volume, but let's use the two hundred dollar figure. You know, the typical extensive one-hour test. They want to know that that two hundred dollars multiplied by their number of new hires is going to be reflected in the reductions of their workers' compensation spend. So we can show them benchmarks from like employers as to what that reduction would look like, and it's generally an ROI. Of somewhere between a low end of three or four to one, and as high as a thirty to forty to one, depending upon the employer.
0: I mean, that's just amazing to and to think about providing that opportunity. And basically, you're not trying to not hire people. What you're trying to do is make sure you're placing the right ones in that right position, instead of just you know, finding an opportunity to exclude those. I really like that point. As you said, I I didn't know that you would still need to see if you can accommodate that person. So I think that brings a lot of hope to companies as well, to know that they still have that responsibility and that option to help people find a job that may not be able to do that task, but there could be another one option available to them.
2: While I was mentioning the return on investment piece, Mm -hmm. I want to, if I could, talk about analytics here. Please. And one of the things that we've done is we have developed an integrated database and an integrated database for this type of work. We have a partner who does this because this is complex work. It's I would call it the big data of occupational health and safety and injury prevention is that we will take in a company's entire human capital benefit lines. So that would include group health, which is medical insurance, group disability, lost time, workers' compensation costs and lost time, pharmacy costs, safety incidents, health and wellness data. We'll take in everything that touches the employer that they're paying where health touches the enterprise including the post-offer employment data. We like the HRIS, Human Resource Information System, that gives us a lot of information. And then what we'll do is we throw it into this basket and we look for associations. And the association that's relevant here is that, and we've done this multiple times and continue to do this now, is that if you take an employee cohort that passed the post-offer employment test, and you compare it against an employee cohort that was not put through a post-offer employment test. That could be in the same company. Again, as I mentioned, sometimes on the West Coast, they're doing it. On the East Coast, they're not. Same job. Or if the database is large enough, robust enough, which ours is, we have millions of lives in it. And you can benchmark a similar industry. So let's say warehousing or long-haul truck driver. You know, We can do that. What you find is what I mentioned earlier is that the people who have gone through the post offer employment test versus ones that have not have a substantial decrease in workers' compensation costs, severity, and claims, roughly in the 50% range, which in itself, that return on the investment there is, as you can imagine, quite large. So basically, you're not injuring people and you can monetize that. However, the fascinating results that we've found over the years is that the cohort of employees that went through post-offer employment testing have substantially reduced group health, group disability, pharmacy costs. They have lower turnover. They have lower crash risk in the transportation industry. And when you monetize those reductions, it's absolutely enormous, the value. Because if you think about it for a moment, if you're hiring somebody who's healthy, able to perform the job, They're going to have less medical issues unrelated to work, fewer lost work days, and an interesting association that we have found over the years with dependents is that healthier employees have healthier dependents, or more likely unhealthy employees have more unhealthy dependents. So there's a carryover effect, which is really, really substantial to the other costs that an employer has. And as I'm sure you're aware, these other costs are an enormous drain upon American industry. As a matter of fact, it's the reason right now that we're going through a strike at General Motors, et cetera, et cetera. And so once you monetize those, you can frequently overcome the concerns, at least in the C-suite. But many of the people, many of the groups we're working with, we're working with a siloed Function or department and employer, and they don't, they're not so concerned about group health. They're only concerned about the workers' compensation costs. One of the challenges we have is to try to get as high up in the organization or to find a champion within the group that we're working with to understand the bigger value of the post offer employment test.
1: And you talked a little bit about crossover there in, in your last answer. I'm wondering if there's any crossover in how pre-employment, the baseline testing information can be used post-injury.
2: Yes, that's a good question. And so once you establish a baseline on an employee, it has value during the natural history of their time, you know, their their time at a company. Examples of that would be they become injured and that rehabilitation process, knowing what pre-existing function was, is very useful for the rehabilitation professionals. Secondly, one of the other areas has to do with what we call apportionment. And that is when an individual goes, let's say they tear the rotator cuff. You know, they were employed, they tear the rotator cuff at work, they have a surgical repair. In the workers' compensation statute, there's a permanency rating. It uses the AMA, American Medical Association Guides for Permanent Impairment. And the evaluator, as part of the workers' compensation process, typically a physician, has to measure the loss of function. So let's say the person could only rotate their arm 50 degrees after, you know, a year after their surgical procedure, and they're supposed to be able to rotate it 90 degrees. The permanency rating is dependent upon that loss of motion. So that 40 degrees of loss of motion translates in the workers' compensation statute to a certain number of weeks of lost time, which translates into a dollar figure. So let's say 40 degree loss translates into a 6% whole body. This is an AMA term, and that 6% whole body translates into 120 weeks of back pay, and that's the award they're given at the time of the final settlement. Well, unless you've measured the fact that the guy came to the workplace with that 40-degree loss, that had nothing went to do with their ability to perform the job, because oftentimes people are moved from one job to the next, and nobody measures the ability to do it, or in fact, it wasn't required to have more than 40 degrees of motion more than whatever the degree that they came with to do the job unless you have pre-existing numbers to show that that loss pre-existed you're going to have to pay for that loss so that's another value it's a very strong monetary value in the use of post-offer employment baseline testing
0: i know amber and i both as athletic trainers That's a big thing for us is, you know, for our schooling is to have a baseline concussion assessment on someone is imperative to know what they were before, to know where they're giving back to normal. So I can see how vital that is in such an easy tool that sounds very underutilized by a lot of companies because they are so worried about the legalities of this type of practice of having a post-offer test Kind of to sum it all up, WorkSteps, who you now work with, their whole mission is to provide a valid and very rigorously tested assessment for employees. And by doing so, it helps to place the right individuals into the right jobs, which is going to reduce those workers' comps and allow employers to have that baseline in case in any incident comes up. Any final thoughts or messages you would like to share with our audience?
2: There's one last one based upon what you just said, and that is that although we're all focused on cost reduction, injury reduction, there's also a need to have the person not become injured because some of these injuries can be very detrimental to one's well-being. And the role of this testing is also to show the potential employee that they're at risk of injury, and it's not something they want to do. So it's a particularly important thing right now because in a full – employment workforce, which is essentially what we're in right now, so that the rates of unemployment are very low and typically are people who would not ordinarily be employed or not being employed those folks are beginning to enter the workplace again because there are opportunities. So you've probably heard that prisoners are now working in certain manufacturing situations and people with certain mental health conditions are trying to be absorbed in the workplace, which is all very good. I mean, you want to take people who have disabilities and move into the workplace, but you have to do it safely. And so with... People who have been marginally or non-employed for a number of years are trying to go to more difficult jobs. and I'm seeing this a lot in manufacturing jobs in certain parts of the country, particularly in the Midwest. They just can't get people. And so they're hiring people who really should not be doing the jobs, and they're injuring them very quickly. And sometimes those injuries are cause permanent damage to individuals. So it also has that value to reduce the risk that you're going to harm somebody that really everybody had good intentions to hire the person, but in fact, it wasn't the right job for that person.
1: I think that was a a great summary there, Ben, and and a point to bring up as well, as far as, hey, look, you might want this job, but in reality, it's not a safe job for you to perform. So that's another great perspective to take on that one. Thank you for making that.
2: You're welcome.
0: And we really appreciate your time, Ben, and all of your efforts to get this message out. And we look forward to having you on in the future to break down other parts of this pre-employment testing and post-offer testing. So thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. You're welcome. We really want to thank Dr. Ben Hoffman for his time. He was so generous, and we are grateful for his insights. And I love how the message that they're sharing is with pre-employment testing, it's not about preventing people from working. If you do it right, you follow the laws, you allow for people to get placed in positions that will allow them to succeed regardless of what their abilities are, and it's not about pushing people out of the workforce, but bringing them in, making sure you know your own job, and then help get those people into the right jobs that they can succeed at.
1: And not only is pre-employment testing available to use to to place those people or to you know to figure out if the job is appropriate but it can also be used when someone returns to work from an injury you know there's there's multiple uses for just that pre-employment test as a baseline so it' it has multiple uses it's a good investment overall.
0: Definitely. And one of the things Ben talked about, Dr. Ben Hoffman has mentioned, is the legalities and the law. And I think that's one of the most daunting things that people can face when deciding do they want to do pre employment testing. So we were fortunate enough to get one of the foremost legal expert minds on our next podcast for December. We're going to be talking with Frank Alvarez, and he is a lawyer with Jackson Lewis. So he's going to take some time and we're going to be dissecting and kind of breaking down how these laws allow for you to do pre-employment testing when you do it right. So very excited for those episodes coming up with Frank. And I just want to thank you and Amber and I both want to thank you as the listener for listening to this episode of Workplace Injury Prevention, a Fit for Work podcast, where we are bringing the power of prevention to you please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and to get started preventing injuries please visit our website at wellworkforce.com or you can email us with any questions or comments to podcast at wellworkforce.com and remember prevention improves lives